Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As our father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it has no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to the children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, babe. Well, good morning. That's my wife, by the way. Thanks, babe. Um, well, happy Father's Day to the dads here in the room. It's good to see you guys. That looks great, and I'm comfortable and ready to go. Uh, I'm excited. Happy Father's Day. It's good to see you all. Thank you again, dads, for leading your families to church this morning and to show them the love of Jesus Christ in communion with other believers. So good job for doing that. Thank you for coming. Um, and after... <sighs> After preparing for this sermon for much longer than Pastor Jason ever has an opportunity to prepare for his, he has like seven days, I had like four weeks. And so I've been living in this psalm, in Psalm 103, and I've been really enjoying it. And, and uh, I have a, a privilege to preach to you uh, on this Father's Day. Uh, one, because I'm expecting a child. My wife and I are expecting our very first child, little Jessie Ray Saxton. She should be here early August, maybe late July. Yeah, give it up. Um, and so I, I'm honored to be able to preach from the standpoint of being a, a new father myself. And uh, secondly, I'm excited to preach about Father's Day specifically from the Psalms because we are going to be entering into our Psalms series beginning next week. And we're going to be looking at what it is to express our emotions biblically, and we're going to use the Psalms as our guide. And so I thought it would be very appropriate to, to look at some characteristics of God as our Father from the Psalms so that we can get used to the language and get used to the rhythm and some of the... The, some of the very, very uh, 
beautiful language and, and verses that, that the Psalms are written into. Um, and so this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, fathers. I mean, it's Father's Day. I wasn't going to be talking about mothers today. That was a while ago. But uh, so big shock, right? We're talking about dads. Well, to kind of introduce us into what we're going to be talking about today, um, I wanted to read some statistics for you. Um, and there may be some times in the sermon that if you feel the need to cry, there are tissues in your pews. So go for that if you need to. These statistics are, are regarding the United States, and specifically, um, they, they come from a website called The Father Code, which, which does some research on its own and also gathers some research from the U.S. government in terms of fatherlessness in the United States. So I'm going to read some of these uh, statistics to you, and then we will go from there. And regarding to fatherlessness in the United States, an estimated 24.7 million children, that's 33%, live absent their biological father. Of students in grades 1 through 12, that's 39%, 17.7 million live in homes without their biological fathers. According to 72.2% of the United States population through a survey, fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. Among children who were part of the post-war generation, 87.7% grew up with two biological parents who were married to each other. Today, only 68.1%, that's 20% in a drop, will spend their entire childhood in an intact family. With the increasing number of premarital births and a continuing high divorce rate, the proportion of children living with just one parent rose from 9.1% in 1960 and over doubled to 20.7% in 2012. So clearly we have a problem, right? Clearly we have an issue of fatherlessness in the United States and generally the world. And so what are we going to do with, with this, with this information? Well, obviously we see that we have fatherlessness going on in our country, but I want that to fuel us to a more correct view of, of the father this morning. And so we have a heavenly father. And if you don't know that, be encouraged. You have a heavenly father this morning be encouraged. But the big question we're going to be asking is, how do we view him? How do we view our heavenly father? And uh, by way of, of asking and answering and, and, and just kind of examining this, um, I'm going to go through some types of fathers that you may have known or may have grown up with. And then we'll go from there. So number one, the types of fathers that you may have known. Passive. Passive. If you had a passive father, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you haven't or you are unsure what your father was, then let me educate you. Passive dads are maybe the ones that you come home to and you want to share your day, the details of your day, uh, and, and he just kind of brushes you off and says, oh, that's cool, and then keeps watching the game. doesn't really engage you. Or maybe you were in a situation where, where you spilled the milk or, or you wrecked the car or he caught you reaching into the cookie jar, and he said, ah, go talk to your mother. Your mother will take care of this. Go speak with her. Maybe you had a passive father. Maybe he wasn't passive, though. The second type of father that you may have encountered or grown up with was aggressive, angry, or abusive. Angry or abusive. And just on behalf, on behalf of the church, if, if, if you grew up in a home that claimed the name of Jesus Christ and you had a father who was aggressive, abusive, or angry towards you, raised his voice to you and maybe even raised his hand to you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that definitely affects the way that you view yourself, the way that you grow up, whether it comes to insecurities, how you, talk to one, how you talk to other people, and how you form relationships. And so I'm sorry for that. 
for those of you who have known that type of father. And finally, an absent father. And that's just what it sounds like. Dad was never there. Um, Never came to my football practice. Never came to my baseball games. Never went to my dance recitals. Wasn't at my wedding. For some of you, you may not even know who your dad is. You don't even know who your real father is. Praise God for stepdads and, and filling in the role, and we praise God for them. But, but maybe your stepdad was the only father you ever knew, and he wasn't around either, or he was passive or angry and abusive. And so what am I getting at with all of this? What I'm getting at with all of this is that more frequently than not, the view that you have of your earthly father, of your dad, can shape your view of God the Father. We all do it. If we have that experience of, of, uh, of, of having a passive father, we, we often may wonder, uh, well, you know, God doesn't really care about what I'm doing. He's way up there and I'm down here. He probably doesn't even see me. Angry or abusive, I'm not going in there because God has lightning bolts and he's going to throw one down my throat for what I did last night. It's okay to laugh. We're having fun. And absent, where are you? God, where are you? Are you even there? And so we're going to dive into this a little bit. The view you have of your father can shape the view of God the Father. So our main question this morning is, what does the Father look like? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack through Psalm 103 and see some characteristics of God the Father, and then we are going to hopefully correct our view of Him, and then we'll wrap things up. So the title of my sermon this morning is, The Father Is. The Father Is. And so what do we see first in the text? Well, first we see the Father is full of grace and mercy. The Father is full of grace and mercy. And mercy. Look with me there in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. It's right there, right? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, and nor will he keep his anger forever. That he's merciful and gracious to us. Um, maybe this will help a little bit to, to kind of portray the opposite side of this for a second. Um, in 1991, there was a profoundly theological movie and thought-provoking movie that was released. Um, it, it, it entailed a storyline full of love, reflection, betrayal, some pretty violent fight scenes, and talking furniture. That got a laugh at the 9 a.m. The movie, of course, that I'm referring to is Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast, yeah, give it up. Disney knows what they're doing. Great storytellers. Beauty and the Beast, right? And so in in this film, we see uh, the Beast who has this curse that is laid on him, right? This curse that that is laid on him by this witch and says that if you don't find someone to love you by your 19th birthday or when the last petal falls from the rose, then you will remain a beast forever for who could ever love a beast? And... So the beast is here in his castle, right? And he has Belle, this woman who, by the suggestion of his talking furniture, Lumiere and Cogsworth, it's no big deal, I know their names, and she's in the tower, and by their suggestion, they're saying, why don't you invite her to dinner? I mean, she could be the girl to break the curse, right? She could be the girl to end it all before the last petal falls from the rose. And so begrudgingly, he goes to the door, right? He goes to the door, and he knocks on the door, and he says, will you join me for dinner? That's pretty good. He says, will you join me for dinner? As calmly as he can. And then through the door, obviously because she's his prisoner, says no. And then he, we just see him go from like zero to like volcanic eruption of anger and rage. And he says, go ahead and starve. And screams at her, right? Clearly the beast was not full of great grace and mercy. Look at that photo, man. I love that. <laughs> go ahead and starve. If she doesn't eat with me, she doesn't eat at all, right? He was not full of grace and mercy. Was your dad like that? Was your father like that? That in the moments of of your failures, 
or any kind of confrontation. He went from, from calm and collected and just that, volcano, that volcanic eruption of rage like we men- mentioned a moment ago through this door that has separated you guys, this unspoken thing that separates the relationship between you two. Do we view God this way? Odds are that if you had a, heavenly, if you had a, a biological father or a dad who was not, grace, not graceful and, and gracious and merciful towards you, that you apply that to the Heavenly Father. But praise God for His Scriptures. They're divinely penned and preserved for us to remind us so that we can see in Psalm 103 that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He will not always chide and He won't keep His anger for us. We praise God for that. So what do we do with that information? What do we do with that? It's great to know that he's full of grace and mercy, but how do I apply that to my life? Well, the application is this. Because the Father is full of grace and mercy, I don't have to live in fear of my failures. I don't have to live in fear of my failures. That regardless of what I did this week, I do not approach this church building quivering and wondering if God is going to cast that lightning bolt. I better not go to church tomorrow morning. I mean, I messed it up last night on Saturday, and I can't even walk through those doors or come up here and pray at the altars or lift my hands or take communion. Do you view the Father as full of grace and full of mercy? We don't have to live in fear of our failures because He is such. And that takes us to our second point. The second point is that he is not just full of grace and mercy, but he is full of love. He is full of love. Look with me in your Bibles. Have your eyes on Scripture. Go to verse 10 in Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jump back up to verse 11 and find so great is his steadfast love. I want you to circle that in your Bible or underline it. This is what the word looks like in the Hebrew. It's pronounced hesed. I'm not a brilliant man. That's from blueletterbible.com. You can do it too. Um, it's pronounced hesed, which also translates to loving kindness or mercy or that he is merciful. So because of the mercy or the loving kindness of the Lord, he, he, he does not deal with us according to our sins. And so, wh- why are we breaking apart the Hebrew of this? Well, I believe that if we break that apart, we can, we can draw two specific things from that word and from these verses. And number one is that he is patient. He is patient. Verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. What does that mean? Well, do some unpacking. If, if you've never heard the word sin before or iniquities, those are, some, those are some big words and maybe need a little bit of background. So I'm going to take it all the way back to the beginning, which we do often here and I love because it clarifies things. So in Genesis 2, in Genesis, God is creating the heavens and the earth, right? And there's this harmony with, with the Trinity and there's community at the beginning and there's love. And then he creates Adam in their own image and then takes a rib from Adam's side and creates woman. And then he gives them and places them into the garden, this paradise, to cultivate it and to work it. And the one thing he tells them and instructs them not to do is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so then the serpent comes along, deceives Eve. She eats, not after 
fudging up some of the words that God had said in his command to them earlier. And then she takes it to her weak and passive husband. I said fudging. Um, (laughs) She takes it to her weak and passive husband who eats. And then that is the moment that sin entered the world. Where disobedience drove a wedge between man and God. Let me clarify this for a moment. Man is, is not what God, is not the reason for the separation. Like, yes, we made the decision to sin and to fall away from God, but it, it's not the man and his character, but it's the sin that separates us. And it's because God is so holy and so righteous that he cannot dwell with sin. So it must have been cast out. And so Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And from that point on, all the way to their children, Cain and Abel, we see murder and the early fathers and all the way through uh, Israel being held captive in Egypt and then, and then being rescued by the Lord through Moses, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, being delivered, finding the promised land, splitting, deportation to Babylon, all of those things. The main problem was sin. The main problem was sin separating mankind from God because of God and His holiness and His righteousness and not being able to dwell near sin or even wink at it. But thank God the story doesn't end there. The story ends with Jesus Christ, God's own Son in the flesh who took on the flesh and lived a life that we could not live, died the death on the cross in our stead for us, and then was resurrected on the third day, defeating death and sin and the grave. And so that's the background for sin. And so that's why we have an understanding of why he is patient. He does not deal with us, verse 10, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. All of that was laid on Jesus at the cross. And so we can understand and know that and know that he is patient with us and see the history of mankind and the sin and the constant idolatry and the straying from God and that he does not deal with us according to our iniquities or repay us according to our sins. So he's full of love and we see that he is patient. Secondly, we see that he is present. We see that he is present. Look with me in your Bibles in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He's established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I want you, if you, if you need to close your eyes to imagine something, go ahead and do it. You have the freedom to do that here. It's a safe place. But close your eyes and imagine with me, if you will, a throne. Have you got it? Some of you have it. All right. Are you imagining like an office chair with like the five, the, the five prongs on the base and like the wheels and one minute you can sit your butt in it and slide all the way over here and another moment you're across the room getting some pancakes from the pantry? No. When you, when, when you, when you imagine and think of a throne, you think of something that is firmly grounded something that is firmly steadfast in an area where the king is centered in the view of everybody reigning and ruling over his kingdom. That is where we draw the implication that he is present, that he's not going anywhere. His throne does not move, and he does not roam the earth. He is established on his throne and that he is present. Uh, Timothy Keller has an awesome quote that was uh, brought to my attention by a friend of mine, and uh, it's this. There is nobody who is as brave enough to go to a king and wake him up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. No one is as brave to go into a king at 3 a.m. and ask him for a glass of water than his son. Than his son. Why is that? Why, is that? why do you think that that, that quote is, is pertinent to what we're talking about here? Imagine it. Imagine your dad's the king of Poplar Bluff. 
and you wake up in the morning at like 3 a.m. and you need something trivial like a glass of water. Are you going to be afraid to go to him because he's this high and lofty authoritative figure? No. The reason that child has the freedom to get up and ask his father for something trivial at 3 a.m. is because he's his father. And he sees him as such. He sees him as his dad. And we have that same access. He is not absent. We have that access to his throne, access to the king. So that in those moments where where we wake up at 3 a.m., we have the privilege and the grace, because he is full of grace and mercy, and because he is full of love, and because he is patient and present, we can hit our knees at 3 a.m. and pray to the Father and bring something to him that we may think otherwise might be trivial to him. Father, I, I, I pray for this relationship. I pray for, I pray for restoration in this relationship with a family member or with a friend. God, help us with, with where we are in our finances. Help us be wise in how we handle our money and honor you with things. Those things may seem trivial, but you have access to the king because he is also your father. You have that access. I want to speak to dads here for a moment. Look up at me, dads, if you're here. Thank you. I saw some eye contact. I appreciate that. Um, Fathers, are you available for your families, for your wife and for your kids? Do your kids have that same access as that boy in the illustration? Alistair Begg puts it this way in his book called Parenting God's Way, which I highly recommend. It's an easy read. It's like 20 pages. And uh, this is from the very first page of of his booklet on uh, Parenting God's Way. And it's from the first paragraph of Fathering God's Way. And he talks directly about this issue. He says, Fathers are meant to nurture and admonish their children in the Lord Jesus. But many delegating dads have abdicated or left that lofty seat of authority. Let mom or the school or the church staff have that job. If all else fails, there's always the TV. Thus we look up and down the pews and see wives, mothers, and single women in our churches, but few Men, but few men. Dads, do you fall in that category this morning? Do your children have the access to come with you, to come to you with something so trivial at 3 a.m., or to come to you with, with a story about their day, or ask you a question? Do you just brush them off and continue watching the game? Or do you give them that access, knowing that you have a Father in heaven who is gracious and merciful to you, who is loving to you and present and patient with you, And that you have the freedom to extend that to your children. I would encourage you to be that way. For Westside, um, for all of you here, do do you view God that way? Do you view God as absent? Do we view him as our heavenly father, but but a distant heavenly father? That when you're in the midst of a struggle, you're sitting at the kitchen table and you're looking at all the papers and you're saying, how am I going to get through this month? How am I going to pay my bills? How are we going to fix the car? Everything seems to revolve around money. Am I a good parent? Am I a good mother or a father? Do my kids even love me? And in those moments, you may ask yourself, God, where are you? Are you even there? Or do you see him as he is? As present and patient. There's a hymn that we sing here from time to time. Uh, It's an old Scottish hymn that was rewritten into English in the 1700s. And I think the lyrics of this verse uh, do this subject matter well. It says, Be thou my vision, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. 
Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. He's present with us. He's patient with us. And so what do we do with that information? I mean, we, we know that he's full of grace and mercy. We know that he's full of love. We know that he's patient and that he's present. But how do I apply that to my life? And the application is this. The love the Father has for me frees me to love others. The love that the Father has for me frees me to love others. As we said earlier, everyone in this room, if we were to understand and, and to comprehend the love that God has for us, not just that he's gracious and merciful, but that he loves us, and that he's patient, and that he's present. That we are free to love others in that same way. To not just respond with thankfulness in our hearts to God, but to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to extend that love to them. 1 John 4.16 puts it this way, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The love the Father has for me frees me to love others. And so that leads us to our next point. Obviously, we see that the Father is full of grace and mercy. We see that the Father is full of love, right? He's, he's patient and he's present. And, and he's available to us, established on his throne. But thirdly, we see that he is full of compassion. Full of compassion. Maybe this illustration will help. In, in October of 2007... In Dallas, Texas, a man by the name of Brian Berg constructed what is recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the tallest freestanding house of cards in the world. Look at that thing. Isn't that incredible? That's the dude down there. He's so tiny. It's 25 feet and 9 inches. That's impressive. And if you've got some free time and you can knock that out, call Guinness because you're probably doing a good job. Um, I tried building a house of cards once when I was a kid. Uh, I sat in my room with a deck of cards. I was kind of enamored with like magic tricks and doing sleight of hand stuff with cards. But uh, somewhere along the line, I saw that somebody had constructed a house of cards. And I was like, I'm going to give this thing a shot. I'll probably be great at it. Lo and behold, I was not. Um, so I sit in my room, carpeted floor, not a flat surface, first mistake. And I'm trying to put these cards together. And after about two or three hours of wrestling with the vent for the air conditioner in my room, constantly blowing in and knocking those cards over, I realized that I should give up card stacking and house building for the rest of my life and leave it to Brian Berg, and he's doing a great job. But I, I use that illustration because building a house of cards is something that, 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 is, that takes patience. It, it, it's delicate. And we see that God views us the same way. We see that he handles us the same way. Look with me in verse 13. As the Father shows... What? Come on, look at your Bibles. Verse 13, as the Father shows what? Compassion, all right, to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. I want you to underline or circle that word, uh, compassion, in verse 13 in your Bible or your neighbor's Bible. Uh, that word translates and looks like this in the Hebrew. Hebrew, it's uh, rakem, which I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but I'm also still blueletterbible.com. That's not my intelligence. You can do it too. Um, and rakem means, it means compassion, but it also means how you would treat a damsel. Or it also means like handling something with tender love. Handling something with tender love. And when we see this compassion, we see that it is not, uh, the, the reason I'm breaking down this word is because that compassion is very different from how we know compassion. We know compassion as like 3 a.m. and we're sitting on our couch eating Nutella. Nutella. Is that how you pronounce it? Nutella. 
We're sitting up at 3 a.m. on our couch eating Nutella with a sleeve of saltines and uh, all the dying puppies come on the, computer, on, the, on the TV screen. And then like Celine Dion is singing and then they're like, give us your money and these dogs are going to die. And, and we're like, oh, I have compassion for those animals. And then the infomercial stops and you didn't write the number down and the compassion is gone. That's not the same compassion that we're seeing here, the rachem that we're seeing. That compassion is different. It's, it's a compassion that, that involves interaction, reaching down and dealing with us with a tender love. Why? Why do we need that kind of compassion? Well, look with me in the next verse. We see that God knows how delicate and fragile we are. And after verse 13 and 14, as the father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? Our answer is verse 14. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. We are seeing here that we are being described in our humanity as, as needing compassion because we are, we are so fragile as dust, as something as simple as a flower in the field that if a storm comes through and blows it away, it's gone forever. And there's no place, no area for you to look at and even see where it was. All the memories are gone. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. It says that man's days are like a vapor. Here one day and gone the next. We are so fragile, and we are dust, and God sees us as such. And so with that compassion, knowing that we are weak and that we are frail and that we need his compassion, his interactive, tender love, how does he deal with us? Well, let's look in verse 17. Verse 17, knowing all of this, knowing that we are dust, verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. We see that he sees us as, as in, a, in a compassionate way and in a way that, that calls for his interactive, tender love. Have you had a father that way? Who, who, who is compassionate and tender? Maybe you hurt yourself while playing outside when you were a kid. You came inside, he said, get over here, you'll be fine. Or go see your mom. Do we view our heavenly father that way? And what does this do for us? What's the application we have this morning to take from knowing that he is full of compassion? And it's this. He is, his compassion corrects the view that I have of myself. His compassion corrects the view that I have of myself. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm speaking to, to a certain area of people this morning, or all of us, whichever it may be. But maybe you were raised by a father and he said, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You have to work and earn everything that you gain in your life. Don't let anybody see you sweat. Don't let them see you cry or see you struggle. Be the first man to throw a punch. Don't back down in a fight. You're stronger. You're better than this. Did you have a dad that raised you this way? Maybe you say, that's me. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to back down. Look at me. I'm a stone. Charles Spurgeon addresses this in his commentary on Psalm 103. It says this in regards to our need for compassion. To those who truly reverence his holy name, the Lord is a father and acts as such. These he pities, for in the very best of men, the Lord sees much to pity. And when they are at their best state, they still need his compassion. This should check every propensity to pride, though at the same time it should yield us the richest of comforts. 
Fathers feel for their children, especially when their children are in pain. They would like to suffer in their children's stead. Their sighs and groans cut them to the quick. Thus sensitive towards us is our Heavenly Father. We do not adore a God of stone, but the living God, who is tenderness itself. He is at this moment compassionating us, for that word is in the present tense. His pity never fails to flow, and we shall never cease to need it. We shall never cease to need His pity and to need His compassion because we are dust, because we are like a flower in the field. We are a vapor. And we need that compassion, and we use His compassion to remind us and to correct our view that we have of ourselves. So that's great, right? It's great to know that the Father is full of grace and mercy, that He's full of love, that He's patient and that He's present, and that He's full of compassion. But what do I do with this information? Maybe you say, I've never known anyone like that. I wish that if I could go back in time, I could talk to my father and beat these things into his head because I need this. I need someone to be loving, gracious, merciful towards me, compassionate, patient, and present. How many of you would want something like that? A presence or, or, or a father who, who behaved that way and raised you up in a proper way? I would. And thankfully, we have somebody that we can see that in. And ultimately, that brings us to our last point, is that the Father is reflected in Jesus. The Father is reflected in Jesus. Colossians 1.15 puts it this way. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1 says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that established throne that we mentioned earlier. What do we do with that? What do we know about, about the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ? We see that if you want to know the Father, you must look at Jesus. If you want to know the Father, you must look at Jesus. Um, there was a disciple named Philip who, uh, who struggled with this a little bit as well. He asked the same question that we're addressing this morning. What does the Father look like? Who is the Father? Describe him to us. Show him to us. Let's go there in Scripture and take a look at it. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 9. John chapter 14. So we see Philip asking a very similar question to what we are asking this morning. Beginning in verse 8 of John chapter 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the who? The Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the who? The Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. If we want to see the Father, we must look at Jesus. Philip had the same question that we, that we have this morning. How do we view the Father? What's the Father like? And Jesus says, look at me. He's like me. The firstborn of all creation, the exact imprint of his nature. 
And maybe you ask yourselves, what does this look like? Well, I mean, Jesus knows about all of these things. Jesus knows about compassion. He knows about grace and mercy. He knows about love. The Sermon on the Mount. Best sermon ever preached. Matthew chapter 5. What does he say? He says, blessed are the merciful, so they shall receive what? Mercy. He certainly knows about love. When he was addressing his disciples, what did he say? He said, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. By the way, you what? Love one another. He understands love and certainly understands compassion. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus goes to the grave of his friend. And what does it say? Jesus wept. He's certainly full of compassion. He's patient and he's present. But thankfully, Christ showed us the Father. He also gave us a way to him. And the big idea I want to work with this morning is that the correct view of the Father comes from a clear view of Jesus. Knowing that Jesus was the embodiment of all of these characteristics, full of grace and mercy, full of love, patient and present, and full of compassion. That in order to see the Father as he truly is, the correct view that we should have of our Father, we have to have a clear view of Jesus. And praise God that Jesus showed us the Father, right? When Philip asked him, show us the Father, and his response, that you've seen the Father, you've seen him in me. Thank God that he did not just show us the Father, but he showed us a way to him. He showed us a way to the Father by his blood. Look with me in John 14. Just jump back a few verses. We were in verse 8. Go to verse 6. Go to verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the who? The Father, except through me. Jesus did not just show us the Father in being full of grace and mercy and love and compassion, but he showed us and gave us a way to him by his blood and being in his family. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 puts it this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you want a clear view of the Father, a correct view, we need a clear view of Jesus. Maybe this morning you're coming in here with a a pretty heavy view of your earthly father with a pretty distraught view of what it is to be a dad. Maybe you're struggling dads as yourselves right now, wondering, am I a good father? Am I a good man to my wife? Am I a good leader to my kids? Am I raising them up in the way that they should go in the Lord Jesus? And am I I dying to myself and loving my wife as Christ loved the church and washing her with water and with the word? If you're struggling with that this morning, look at the Father. See the love that He has for us. He would lay down his life, give his own son. The band's going to come up as we are preparing to uh, go into a time of response. And before we come forward and take communion, which is a beautiful illustration of the Father's love for us, right? Jesus coming and displaying on the cross and through his life grace, mercy, love, compassion, patience, and presence. Before we do that, I want to ask you guys a few questions. If you would stand with me.
The first question I have for you is this, and this is to everyone in the room. Have I projected a false view on the Father? Have I projected a false view on the Father? Did I grow up with a dad who was impatient with me? Did I grow up with a father who raised his voice or his hand to me? Did I grow up not knowing even who my dad was? He was never around. I don't even know his name. Do I project those things onto my heavenly father? Or secondly, do I know him as he is? Do I know him as he is? Full of love, grace, and mercy. Compassion. Lastly, I want to address dads this morning. If you're a father in the room, I want you to look at me. If there's anything that you take away from this day today, I want it to be this. This is my Father's Day gift to you, okay? Like, get ready to receive this. Happy Father's Day, here it comes. Dads, your success as a father is directly linked to your submission to Jesus. Your success as a father is directly linked to your submission to Jesus. Because his love for you frees you to love others. Because his compassion corrects the view that you have of yourself. Because he's full of grace and mercy, you don't have to live in in fear of your failures anymore. Submitting to Jesus is the best thing you can do for your family. It's the best thing you can do for yourself. It's a beautiful response and the most appropriate response to God the Father as our Heavenly Father. So I would encourage you, dads, this morning, if you don't know Jesus and you want to know Him, come forward, pray, give your life to Him in this moment, submit to Christ. And dads, before you come to take communion, for those of you who are believers, I charge you to pray with your families. I want you to pray with your families right there in the pews. And I want you to lead them in a prayer that promises that you will submit first and foremost to your head, which is Jesus. And that you will lead your family continually and daily to Him. Let's pray together before we respond. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to come this morning and to hear about the true Father. Thank you for giving us a clear view of Jesus so that we can have a correct view of you, a correct view of the Father, so that no longer will I have a view of the Father that looks like my earthly father who who abused me or or was never around, was impatient with me or, or... brushed everything off on my parents, on my mom, and abdicated his responsibility. I now view the Father as Jesus. I see the Father reflected in Jesus, full of grace and mercy and love and compassion. Holy Spirit, help us to correct our views this morning of the Father. Help us do it by looking at Jesus. We lift you high this morning. And on this Father's Day, we give you glory and honor praise and ask all of these things in the mighty and living name of Jesus who reflects our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Dads, pray with your families and then come forward as you feel led. What better way to respond to the first verse of, of this entire chapter of Psalm 103? How do we respond to all of this?
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. So we're going to sing that this morning together.